The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. Good morning. Merry Christmas. I am so glad to be here with you uh, today. I I love Christmas time. I know that's a pretty controversial um, opinion. but um, I absolutely love Christmas time. Um, I love the, the sense of the sacred that we have. I love the music. I love the food. Um, I love the movies. Um, I've got a top three list of favorite movies, like regular movies, not so much, but um, Christmas movies, I always have my like, top three favorites. Um, so I, I love so many things about Christmas. But I think uh, one of the the biggest perks, one of the things that I enjoy the most um, about Christmas is the bonus time I get with family. Um, I um, have been blessed with a really wonderful family. A lot of you know my folks, uh, Jim and Tammy, Jim Sr., um, Jim the Elder, um, by age, not position. Um, and uh, you know my sister Sarah, and, uh, and really I, I have two other siblings, and we all really enjoy each other. Uh, we um, like it when we get together, and, and Sarah is probably as good a friend um, as any that I have. Um, so I, I, I really enjoy my family. Um, my wife and kids, um, they bring me more joy than I could possibly talk about. Uh, Kayla, um, she brings all the blessings of Proverbs 31 um, into my life, and I'm very grateful for her. Uh, Lula, um, if she didn't look so much like Kayla and me, um, I would be sure that uh, she had been um, placed, um, replaced our, our child um, by fairies because the things that she says, the off-the-wall jokes, sort of worldly-wise axioms that she pulls out, and I'm looking at Kayla and saying, like, did you teach her that? Where did she pick that up? Um, all these things are a great joy. And then uh, little Jimbo, he smiles so much of the day that um, it hurts my face trying to keep up with him, um, trying to smile back at him. So it's not only natural, the extra time I get with them um, is one of the big perks of Christmas. I recognize not everyone has the same experience as me. Christmas kind of seems like a magnifier um, for um, our experiences with families. If our families are a blessing, um, Christmas magnifies that blessing. Um, If our families are a challenge, then uh, Christmas can magnify the the difficulty of that challenge, the the pain that that we sometimes feel. Um, Usually it's a mixture of both. Um, I remember I had a friend in high school who his mom was um, a sweet lady in a lot of ways, um, but had like a particular sort of personality. And my friend, you know, recognized that. Uh, but, you know, the funny thing was, is that he, he felt very free. He's like, I'm, I'm frustrated that my mom is doing this. But if any of his friends ever said, oh yeah, that, it kind of bothers me when your mom does that, he would say, how dare you? Don't ever talk about my mom that way. Not quite that strong, but that was the feeling that, um, that he had. So whatever your experience is, it's inescapable that family tends to be one of the central shaping forces of our life. They provide a lot of our worldview, um, and our purpose in life, um, our training, and even our sense of selves. I've met very few people who can genuinely say that they are indifferent to their families. 
But for those of us who are united with Christ, uh, we have a much larger family. Our family's grown larger, or rather we've been adopted into a much larger family. The adoption doesn't uh, weaken or negate the bonds that we have with our natural families. Um, in a lot of cases, quite the opposite. Um, it can strengthen those bonds uh, because God created natural families and wants us to be, glor- wants to be glorified in those families. But our heavenly family is an eternal one. And we are meant to be learning to live with and love that family right now. Because it's so large, and, and I think because it's, it's more like loosely defined um, based on professions of faith, and, and then sometimes um, falling away from faith, it, it can be harder for us to intuitively grasp the family nature um, of the Christians that surround us. However, our Father in heaven knows and enjoys his people as a family every bit as much as we enjoy our natural families. He calls us to know and enjoy them in the same way. So as we've been walking through verse John and focusing on how our God is a God of light and love, then we as children of that God need to be a people of light and love as well. Um, and that's what First John is, is continuing to call us to. So if you'll pray with me now, um, we'll dig into the passage. Heavenly Father, uh, we love you because you've loved us first, and we are so thankful um, that you have called us and made us your own, that you call us children. Father, um, we pray that um, as we turn to the word this morning, that you will give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Um, Father, we pray that um, where your word um, offers um, tough warnings, um, that um, we won't shy away from that, um, but that we will have hearts um, that are convicted um, and change uh, based on the words that, that your Holy Spirit speaks to us. Father, I ask these things in your son's name. Amen. All right, well, there's a lot of passage, so let's dig right in. 1 John 2, 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. All right, so right off the bat, the members of the church are the children of God. Um, that's what John, the beloved disciple, is, is calling us to understand. Uh, he appeals to us as this family of God, and he even goes so far as to call us little children. Um, just because of my sense of dignity, I'm, I'm, I'm almost a little like taken aback by that, uh, maybe, maybe kind of offended. Uh, but John is referring to us um, in the same way that our Lord Jesus Christ um, is referred to us. Um, it's not being condescending, but it, it's rather a term of deep, deep affection. So when Christ says um, to his disciples, let the little, little children come to me, or that unless we become like little children, we can't enter the kingdom of heaven, 
That's the kind of children that John is referring to us as, is those people who've come to Christ, um, come to Christ as, as if we were little children, needy um, and reaching out to him. In verse 3, John emphasizes the graciousness of God in calling us his children and reassures us it's not an empty boast. I'll tell you, like, I, um, I'm pretty loose with the term brother. Um, I, you know, have said it kind of since I was growing up and kind of picked up the habit from people that I was around and realized, like, at some point along the way that uh, maybe it's sometimes a little bit empty boast, like, I call people brother, but I, I don't know if I like was treating them as brother, um, treating them as, uh, and ladies, I apologize. I'm, I, I don't know why I ever picked up the habit of, of using sister as sort of a, a term of affection, but you are my sisters and I'm thankful for you. Uh, but sometimes, you know, it could be a little bit of an empty boast, but when God calls us his children, um, when our heavenly father um, refers to us as children, uh, there's deep sincerity behind that. Um, it's not, um, not an empty uh, name for the people that he's talking to. Uh, it's, it's not um, something to be condescending. Uh, but it is the truest foundation that he's adopted us into his family. Um, he has made us his own. Um, he's made us his own sons and daughters through faith in Jesus Christ. So looking back on the basis of this family bond, John makes his appeal to us, abide in God. What does that mean? What does it mean to abide? When Christ says he is the vine and we are the branches and that abiding in him brings fruitfulness, but that apart from him we can do nothing, what is he getting at? I think it's already been discussed in previous sermons in this series, but I think it's worth mentioning again. Um, I've long thought of it in terms of devotional life my reading of God's word and praying to him is how I come into his presence or come close to him or abide with him. There's certainly some truth to that. That's probably part of the picture. But I don't think that's what John has in mind here. I think it's pretty clear in the passage that abiding is, at a minimum, closely tied to the practice of righteousness. So that when we are practicing righteousness, that is when we are abiding in God, abiding in Jesus Christ. Why should we abide? John reminds us that an account will be given when Christ appears. He says, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Do y'all remember the parable of the talents? Uh, the master, um, in one account, he he gives to three servants differing amounts, um, goes away. The servants use those um, amounts to invest and create business, except for one, um, unfaithfully, just hides it in the ground. Um, in another account, it's an equal amount, but you know, in the, in the same uh, vein, uh, the warning is to those who uh, take the gifts that God has given them and, and don't use them to advance his kingdom, to, to build him up. John is encouraging us that we're going to give an accounting like the servants, and he wants us to give a good accounting, like the, the ones um, who invested those talents, um, who invested the resources that God had entrusted to them um, to see his kingdom expand. So why doesn't the world recognize us as the children of God? Um, if we occupy this privileged position, um, if we are 
called by God's sons and daughters, um, then why, why doesn't the world see it in the same way? I think it's pretty obvious the world doesn't have the same categories to recognize believers as the new humanity that God is creating. Um, instead, it, it loves to denigrate us, uh, loves to accuse us of hypocrisy, sometimes deserved, but not always. And they do this with a view towards discouraging followers of Christ Jesus and soothing any pangs of conscience about their unbelief. John holds out the hope that the future transformation uh, we look forward to will spur us on to purify ourselves now. You see there in the, the last couple of verses. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So John holds out this hope um, of the future transformation that we look forward to, um, to encourage us to purify ourselves now. I, I think John is communicating that uh, the future glorification, the state that we occupy um, when Christ returns and, and all, un, all sad things are, are made untrue and um, he restores all things to himself, he's saying that that future glorification is sweeter um, for the present sanctification that we enjoy. Um, that as we grow in conformity to the image of Christ Jesus, um, that we are putting deposits into um, a heavenly account, uh, an account that um, will last forever um, and one that we'll enjoy forever. Um, not as a, a mean, like a basis for our salvation, um, but a very real, um, a very real uh, deposit that has um, eternal ramifications, um, if that makes sense. And we know that the sanctification that we participate in now is only possible because of the past justification we enjoy in Christ. We could not become like Christ if Christ had not died for us first um, and made us his own and, and we placed faith and trust in him. Moving on. Uh, seems like I just, okay. It sounded like I went out for a second. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Friends, this is a weighty passage. It has a lot of... Um, very hard warnings. Um, a lot of things that, um, as a people who uh, rightly proclaim a salvation um, through faith in Christ alone, um, don't always know how to integrate into our, our thinking and our understanding. It warns us that the consistent practice of sin is not compatible with being a child of God. Being a child of God is incompatible with habitual, unrepentant sin. It shows unbelievers as being incapable of pleasing God, and it, it might be evidence 
that some who claim Christ, who speak Christ's name, are not being honest, either with others or with themselves. Why is that the case? The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. God's mission in sending Christ was to reverse the course of sin, to destroy the works of the devil. Children of God joined in that mission, however slow or weak their progress may be. So what's the practice of righteousness that John's talking about? What does it mean to live rightly before a holy God? I think, I mean, we know that it includes um, a variety of things. Um, I think we know that as believers in God, we're called to uh, live a life um, that reflects the sexual ethics that um, God has laid out for us. We know that uh, believers in, in Jesus are, are called to be honest and upright um, in all their, their dealings. Uh, we know that um, believers should work hard um, as unto God and not in their professions and their vocations and their homes, um, should be working hard um, as unto God and not unto men. And the list could go on. However, in this context, the righteousness that God is calling his children to through his servant John is to love the family of God through the purifying of ourselves from hatred and from the putting on of brotherly love towards one another. Verse 11. For this is the message. Beginning. Okay, every time I look down... Um, for this is the message you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother is righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer and you know that murder, that no murderer has an eternal life abiding in him. Now, I, I, when I come to a passage like this, there, there's always a temptation to check out a little bit and say, like, well, I, you know, I'm not really a hateful person. Um, I can't really think of um, many enemies that I have. Uh, but um, I think John's warning to, you know, in the same way that um, we turn away from other sins, John is preparing us ahead of time and, and saying, like, the temptation uh, to hate our brothers, to hate our brothers and sisters, to murder them in our heart um, is a real temptation to everyone. Have you ever experienced what John is saying about Cain? I have. I can, I can remember that feeling. Gossiping or telling maybe an off-color joke. Then a mature brother steps in and sets an example of the kind of speech we're supposed to engage in as followers of Christ. Maybe sometimes they even offer a general rebuke. Just a reminder. Does my flesh feel gratitude for that? No. I think to myself, that smug jerk. not rejected me the same way as Cain, but in my flesh, I can fully identify with what Cain felt. Others' righteousness has revealed my sin, and I sense the shamefulness of it. 
but instead of being quick to repent, my heart entertains bitterness towards the one whose deeds are righteous. Does that sound at all familiar to anyone? So if we are tempted to hate someone, um, to hate someone who is in Christ Jesus, how much more um, a world that does not know forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ? I think John knows that it's unpleasant, um, that we face scorn um, from a surrounding world, and I think that's why he's preparing us now. One discussion in sort of the Christian blogosphere that's been going on lately is, um, is how to um, live in sort of this American context um, here in the 21st century. And um, one, the, the term they've come up with, that, come up with for that um, is a negative world framework. Um, and the idea being that um, Christians have uh, received like, you know, varying degrees of acceptance um, here in America throughout its history. Um, and, but recognizing that Christianity is becoming more and more of a social liability um, and sort of preparing us for that, to live in that world. Uh, the, the ideas are attributable to a, a man named Aaron Wren. Um, I, I think he's probably um, coalescing ideas that have been floating around for a while, uh, but he, he's kind of the author of that. And if he's right, then we should expect to see the hatred um, that John is talking about more and more. However, um, John's warning is still to, to members of the church. And he's saying that even worse than being hated um, is to believe that we are saved by some act of piety that has no convicting power to check our hatred at our brothers and sisters in Christ. John's warning is stark. He doesn't pull any punches. Hatred is the heart of murder in much the same way as lust is the heart of adultery. The line between our inward heart and our outward actions is so much thinner than we think. On God's scales, it disappears altogether. Verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. So John is kind of rounding third base, um, heading for home, and uh, he offers uh, this contrast to the hatred that he's been talking about um, up to this point. John points to our Lord and our Savior, the man Jesus Christ, and, and shows how he has set the pace. He laid down his life for his people. We are called to the same action. So what does that mean? Are we going to be martyred? Are we going to, to face the cross in the same way that Jesus does? Maybe, but for most of us, I, I wouldn't hold my breath. The likeliest call is, is much more mundane. We must be generous with our wealth and possessions towards those family members who are in need. Why do I say it's more mundane? Uh, well, I, I think we can tend to um, romanticize martyrdom and suffering sometimes. Um, we, we look to the heroes of the faith. Um, we admire the, 
um, the bravery, the confidence they had in Christ as they um, faced the stake for um, trying to bring the Word of God to the people. Uh, we, we look at that and um, wonder if you know, we could follow in the same footsteps. Um, we, we admire their bravery. However, since most of us are going to face the decision as to whether we're going to be generous with the goods God has entrusted to our stewardship, um, it's a little more plain, uh, a little more normal. It's hard to, to part with the things that we've saved up and stored up for a rainy day. Um, it's hard to um, recognize other people's needs and give generously, and especially in a way that doesn't bring any recognition to ourselves. If you want to flip to James chapter 2, I was going to read from there real quick. He makes a similar appeal. James 2.14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. For as the body, and the skipping down to verse 26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So John has marked um, this generosity, this willingness to, to part with the world's goods as a critical sign of love for the family of God. And James marks the same thing as a critical sign of genuine faith. They're two sides of the same coin. I kind of mentioned before, I think that we get a little nervous when discussing the practice of righteousness because of our confessional commitment to a salvation that comes through faith in Christ alone. We are worried that a focus on good deeds will tempt us to believe in a works-based salvation. But John, John here um, is calling us to a salvation-based works, um, a salvation that produces in us a love for the body of Christ um, and convinces us and, you know, is, is most clearly demonstrated um, in just a freedom with the things that God has entrusted with us to bless others, to uh, meet needs um, as they come up. Verse 19. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and we sure our heart... Reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Conscience and heart are tricky things. Um, our consciences can um, be well-formed by knowledge of the word. Um, our consciences can um, possibly be oversensitive. Um, I, I think Paul and Romans kind of hints at that. Um, 
and so like knowing what to think when, when the topic of conscience comes up um, isn't always immediately clear. I think one key takeaway though is that conscience is real. And John states, John believes that it's something that is worth tending to. So John says, by this, the this that John is referring to is the righteous deeds of contributing to the needs of other believers. He holds out that those deeds testify to our identification with the truth. I think this reads as like the truth of the gospel. And he helps to settle our hearts regarding our relationship with our Father. Uh, Matthew Henry had this to, to say about the passage. Here is the condescension, the miracle, the mystery of divine love that God would redeem the church with his own blood. Surely we should love those whom God has loved and so loved. The Holy Spirit, grieved at selfishness, will leave the selfish heart without comfort and full of darkness and terror. By what can it be known that a man has a true sense of the love of Christ for perishing sinners, or that the love of God has been planted in the heart by the Holy Spirit, if the love of the world and its goods overcomes the feelings of compassion to a perishing brother? Every instance of this selfishness must weaken the evidences of a man's conversion. When habitual and allowed, it must decide against him. If conscience condemns us in known sin or the neglect of a known duty, God does so too. Let conscience, therefore, be well-informed, be heard, and diligently intended to. So you see what John is holding out there. John is saying, yeah, go and do these things. If, if you know the good that you ought to do, go and do it. Um, because the alternative is that your conscience will condemn you. Um, and he says that if your conscience condemns you, then um, the Father who knows all things... Um, he may condemn your deeds as well. Um, I tremble when I say that. Um, I don't um, want to lay um, like a, a burden of legalism on you. Um, and I, I feel like that's kind of what our, our culture has pushed back against. But these are the words of Scripture. This is John speaking to us. This is the Holy Spirit speaking to us through John um, and saying these things to us um, and giving us these stark warnings. Take another look at verse 21. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. This is another kind of tricky verse. Is it suggesting a sort of karmic, karmic tit for tat? It doesn't mean that God operates on the basis of an exchange of favors. Um, that is, we, we give him an act of obedience he gives us an act of provision. Obviously, no. Um, that's not the case. Uh, later on in the letter in chapter 5, John will say that when we pray according to God's will, God hears us, and that hearing us, he responds. Um, and so I, th I think that, that over the course of the whole letter and the course of the whole Bible, um, we see that obedience um, and understanding the will of God are two very closely related uh, realities, things that um, as we obey God more, we understand more of God. And as we understand more of God, we ask of God in align with his will. Um, our, our hearts are beginning to ask for the things um, that God wants to do anyways. Still, the warning is clear. Um, obedience and disobedience impacts our prayer lives. 
So take that warning to heart. How should we live in light of these passages? I think first off, our Father is calling us, his dearly loved children, into the um, mission of his family. Earlier in the passage, you, know, you remember when it says that Christ came into the world to destroy the works of the devil. Um, that's the family mission. Um, we are here to destroy the works of the de- devil. We do that um, through practicing righteousness um, and pushing back um, against the sin and wickedness in a weary world. John has made clear that the starting point for righteousness is loving the brothers and sisters, and this shouldn't be a surprise. Christ said that loving our neighbors as ourselves is part of the summary of the whole law. And there's a present, um, a present blessing for working hard um, on the mission of God, um, the mission that he has uh, set for us. The blessing's a clean conscience. Um, I know that that uh, can't be sold on any exchange um, for any, any profit, um, but for people who've, who've had um, deep conviction of their sin, a clean conscience is a, a really valuable thing. Can you, do you know that? I mean, have you experienced that? Um, that, that sort of weight of sin that, that kind of bears us down and um, separates us from our family? In closing, I wanted to say one last thing. Uh, you know, we read these warnings and, you know, we're taking them to heart and we are examining ourselves and hoping to, uh, to grow and, and be more like our Christ, testify that Ridgewood Church um, has, has done so many of these things, um, and I've seen uh, the work of God, the work of the Holy Spirit, um, and the lives of so many here, being generous with their goods, being generous with their time, being generous with their houses, being generous with their families, um, in many ways, like embodying so many of these things. Um, so when we come to a passage like this, it it's not, you know, me speaking to you, say, like, from ground zero, you know, begin to do these things. Um, but it is saying, like, let's look again and, and you know, be aware of uh, hatred creeping into our heart or sort of a, a clutching um, of the world's goods. Let's be aware of those things growing in us and put them to death again and grow and do more and more um, to be a blessing to the family of God. I'm grateful for you. Um, may the Lord increase in us. Trying to do it with natural voice there. So I'm going to pray and uh, then encourage you to take a few minutes and uh, think about the passage and ask the Lord to speak this word to your heart um, to convict you of sin, uh, to reveal there's even a seed of bitterness, a seed of hatred, um, or uh, a tendency to, to hoard and hold on to the things that God has entrusted to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, I can identify uh, with so many of the things uh, in this chapter of the Bible and 
uh, the warnings that John gives and the um, upward call that um, he delivers, um, that we become children of light and love, become people of light and love um, through the putting to death of hatred, uh, through the putting on of generosity, um, through loving one another uh, the way that your son Jesus has loved us, uh, loving sacrificially. Father, I ask that uh, you'll do these things in me and um, in Ridgewood Church, um, that the blessing that you give us will be a, a blessing of uh, holiness and righteousness and conformity to the image of your Son. Father, I ask that you would do these things um, for your namesake. Amen.